Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in semi-chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name is Sarah. And I'm Ben. Now the reason I say semi-chronological is also because this is episode 46B. Ben, what, what am I talking about? In the world of comic books, they call this a continuity insert. Okay. Um, <laughs> so way, way back back in the 1930s, right. uh, we watched a movie called La Llorona. Yeah. It was the first Mexican horror film. Yeah, that was a really interesting... Uh, it, it was so unique, and we had a hard time ranking it, when our closest example to a Mexican horror film was Spanish Dracula. Mm-hmm. At the time, I mentioned that it was fairly successful, and that it kicked off sort of a short golden age of Mexican horror films. And then we promptly didn't watch another one. Yes. Not for lack of trying. Yes. So tonight's movie is one that I've been aware of for a long time. It just proved tricky to track down. Initially when we wanted to watch it, like this movie's been on and off YouTube many times now Mm. where I would find a copy on YouTube and it would get taken down Usually not because of the movie itself, but because of the account that put it up. Oh. Like, I think the movie itself might be public domain by now, but usually the account that put it up would get taken down for other copyright infringement notices. This movie, the situation might be different if we were in Mexico, because I think this movie is on DVD in Mexico, um, but that DVD doesn't have English subtitles. This movie's never been released in, like, a dubbed or subbed home video release in English-speaking territories. Um, So you can't get it on home video here in Canada unless you imported it, and we wouldn't be able to understand it anyway. So it it just proved a little difficult to track down, and, you know, back when we were supposed to do this movie, it was just, you know, clock was ticking, and by the time we had to do the next episode, it wasn't available, so we just moved on to the next movie on the list. What are the two movies that this chronologically fits in between? So if you're listening to the episodes in chronological order, like if you're listening to 46B after 46 and before 47, you're listening to this after Black Moon and before Sex Maniac. (laughs) Interesting. Cool. Those are two weird movies in, I guess, like real life, in, in the order that we are actually covering them in this is coming after last week's movie, The Devil Commands, where we're already in 1941. Yeah, so we're jumping back quite a bit for this. Yeah. Um, so we have to kind of rewind our brains not only to where the horror genre was in 1934, but also kind of rewinding a little bit too, because La Llorona was earlier in the 30s and obviously sparks a, a different kind of horror genre than what we would see in like, America pump-it-out studio films. Yeah. um, La Llorona was 1933. Okay. And this movie definitely spun pretty directly out of it. Um, I finally did manage to track down a copy uh, that seems to be pretty stable on YouTube. It... I don't know what the video's called. Like, the video's been uploaded with um, a descriptive Spanish 
language title that I don't know. What do you mean? Like it, like the video isn't called the name of the movie. The name of the movie, by the way, if I haven't said it so far in this episode, we haven't. Uh, is El Fantasma del Convento uh, from 1934, but the which means the Phantom of the Convent, right? The video on YouTube, like like the movie, is obviously has its own title. I just mean like the upload title on YouTube is some descriptive thing in Spanish, and I think that's part of the reason why it hasn't gotten taken down. Okay. Yeah. It's like incognito. Yeah, it's like if I uploaded Star Wars onto YouTube and I titled it, like, Imaginative Space Fantasy from America or something, right? Yeah, it was the descriptive Spanish title that I was like, I don't understand what you're saying. Yeah, but it's on the Scream Scene playlist now, so for as long as it's up, people can now see it and watch it along with us. In the playlist, is it, like, immediately after... Devil Commands type deal, no, or is I, it way it's, back? It's chronological. It's right. chronological. Okay, cool. Listen, things have to be done the right way. No, that's why I was confirming. <laughs> the release of La Llorona in 1933 had proven to be a big hit, uh, and so in response to that, producer Jorge Pizet decided to capitalize on that success by engaging several of the key creatives from that movie to do a follow-up horror film. Uh, notably... Fernando de Fuentes, who had co-written La Llorona, mm-hmm. uh, and he would go on to co-write and direct this new movie, El Fantasma del Convento. So de Fuentes was born in 1894 in Veracruz and studied philosophy at Tulane University in New Orleans. He served as executive assistant to Venustiano Carranza, who was one of the leaders of the Mexican Revolution. Oh. And later worked at the Mexican Embassy in Washington. Uh, He wrote poetry as a hobby and initially got involved in the film industry as an exhibitor. This guy has a very interesting life. Yes. Studying philosophy, writing poetry. Very cool. His first on-set job was as an assistant director on Santa in 1932, which was the first Mexican film with sound. Okay. He was soon considered to be the most talented filmmaker of the early sound era. Uh, He's most praised for his Revolution trilogy, which was produced from 1933 to 1936. He directed the first color Mexican film. He invented the Comedia Ranchera genre, and he was awarded the Cinematic Medal of Merit by President General Lázaro Cárdenas, and he also won first prize at the 1938 Venice Film Festival. So this guy's a pretty big deal. Yes. Um, and it sounds like this film is right when he starts picking up steam. Yeah, El Fantasma would be his sixth film in a career that would encompass nearly 40 films before his death in 1958. Wow. So by association, is this film pretty famous? I guess like in the niche that it's in. Like, of, it's, like, Mexican horror films? Yes. Okay. Like, it, it doesn't seem to get a lot of recognition outside of Mexico, and it doesn't seem to get a lot of recognition outside of horror. You have to kind of be in that exact niche for this movie to be well-known. And to be listening to this podcast, so... Fair, we yes. are We are spot on. De Fuentes would co-write the film with producer Jorge Pizet and fellow filmmaker Juan Bustillo Oro, who would go on to make his own horror film... Dos Monjes, uh, later in 1934. Okay. 
Cool. Will we be watching that? Is it possible? At the moment, it is. Uh, so we, I plan on getting to it. Hopefully, it's still available by the time we go to record that episode, because that has happened to us before a few times, where, like, the day of, a movie just disappears. Yeah. Pizzette developed the concept for the story, which is something of a gothic horror movie, with De Fuentes and Oro after becoming fascinated with the Aztec mummies on display in the Museo del Carmen and becoming determined to use them in a film. <laughs> uh, the movie was shot in a real monastery in Tepotzatlan and was released on June 27th, 1934 in Mexico City. So about the time that the code was getting coming into effect in America, because that was at the start of July mm-hmm. in 1934, um, to, just to put you in a mind of like where American horror was at. Yeah. The film received a good deal of critical acclaim, uh, and it's still very highly critically regarded now. Today, it is generally considered to be the standout film in this early era of Mexican horror, like... La Llorona's the first, but El Fantasma del Convento's the, like, big classic. Interesting, okay. This is perhaps primarily owing to the high reputation of its director, De Fuentes, who is often called the Mexican John Ford. I can see why they would go with John Ford, because he's, like, the reason westerns are a big deal, but you'd think they'd go with, I don't know, James Whale? Like, someone who is, like, equally, like, in horror? Yeah, this is De Fuentes, like, only horror movie, though. Like, he co-wrote La Llorona, and he co-wrote and directed this movie, but, like, his most famous movies are about the Mexican Revolution, or their comedies set on ranches, or their otherwise, like, dramas, or movies set, uh, like, historical dramas, or whatever. Like, he did... Tons of movies in tons of genres. Um, So his horror stuff is really just this and the other movie that we've already seen. Okay. Interesting. So El Fantasma del Convento was released in the U.S. uh, under the title Phantom of the Convent on April 21st, 1935. Uh, So it did get an American release in theaters, um, but it hasn't seen any kind of home video release in English, uh, which makes it very hard to find. Notably, the one YouTube version that I've been able to get a hold of is, of course, not subtitled. So once again, as we have a few times in the past, we are diving into the world of auto-Google-translated subtitles. And, like, we've done this for uh, Alrauna, I believe? Yeah, and then we did it with, um... The remake of Unheimliche Geschichten, which I should point out... There's a new YouTube version on the Scream Scene playlist now that has real subtitles that oh. aren't auto-translated. Uh, and then we've also done it for Le Golem, the 1936 oh, yeah, the Golem. Yeah, remake of the Golem. Um, and uh, we also did it for actually for La Llorona as well. Yeah, that's true. So. Speaking of La Llorona, just to kind of like remind people what we thought of that film since this movie is so attached to it, Mm -hmm. I guess you could say. Um, La Llorona was about this uh, female spirit that uh, seeks revenge on... Shitty dudes. On shitty dudes. A lot of the film was like a historical drama, a period piece. Well, because there was a lot of, like, flashbacks to show you, like, how this ghost had, like, 
haunted through the generations or whatever. Yeah, and eventually it led up to current-day Mexico, where these, I guess you could call them aristocrats? Um, or descendants of aristocrats, Descendants anyway. of aristocrats were, or thought they were being haunted, um, and their Aztec servants were the ones making them think that they were being haunted yeah. to seek revenge on the aristocrats for colonizing them, basically. basically yeah. It makes sense to me that La Llorona has an Aztec influence, this film presumably does, and it makes sense that Mexico would bring in, Mexican filmmakers and artists in general, I think, would bring in, like, Aztec themes because it, the temples and that history is right there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it doesn't feel as, like, I guess the word I'm looking for is appropriative as... The states being like, ah, the Egyptian mummies. Yeah, and with this, that's fil- exotic enough to make a movie about. <laughs> sure, and this movie's you know set in a monastery as well, so I assume we're gonna see a lot of Catholic imagery, which of course is also a huge cultural part of Mexican identity, right? Definitely. So, if you would like to watch along, we have a version of this film up on our YouTube playlist. Um, you'll have to scroll back to around 1934-ish for the movie. Uh, you're looking for the one that's right before Sex Maniac with the Spanish title. Yeah. Um, so if you'd like to watch along with us, you totally can. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and then when we come back, we will discuss El Fantasma del Convento, directed by Fernando de Fuentes. See you on the other side, everybody. everyone to Scream Scene. We just finished watching El Fantasma del Convento from 1934, directed by Fernando de Fuentes. Sarah, uh, what did you think of this movie? Pretty good. I really liked it. Oh, that's good. I wouldn't say that this is like one of my favorite movies, but I think it's a pretty good movie. It had its spooks. There were a couple times where I was like, what? Like that. Uh, I wish there had been proper subtitles. Yeah, that would have been nice. Um... Especially because there's some text in the movie, uh, making it hard. Like, there's no subtitles for the text, so we had to, like, pause and, like, translate it. Yeah. But, uh, I don't know. I found this a lot easier to follow in the... Like, we've talked about the Google auto-translate subtitles before, and how it's kind of like this guessing game between the few words and phrases that it manages to get right and knowing the story and, like, context clues and having to kind of put it together yourself. And it seems where Google has the biggest trouble with is, like, if there's problems with the volume, like if someone's whispering or yelling, or if there's someone speaking with, like, a lot of emotion or very fast. Like, if you're just kind of monotone, even keel, it does a fairly decent job. But um, of the ones we've seen or had to watch this way, I found this the easiest to follow. And I really enjoyed this. I wasn't sure what to expect. La Llorona was, for me, more interesting than it was good. Mm -hmm. Like, it was attempting cool things, but, like, it never quite got where it wanted to go in terms of, like, 
the amount of spookiness, I guess. And I think this movie was way more effective. And I think part of the reasons for that was it dialed down, like, I think in some of the ambition to focus on, like, more effective, like, doing more with less is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Because La Llorona had, like, multiple ghosts and, like, period piece scenes down back in, like, conquistador times and, like, big sets and, like, streets and all this kind of stuff. And this movie's in, like, one place with, like, three characters and manages to do a lot better job. I would agree with that. I'm glad you really enjoyed it. Tell us what it's about. So our movie begins with our three main characters. Eduardo, his wife Christina, and their friend Alfonso. And they're traveling through the mountains. Uh, when the movie begins, Eduardo has fallen down a ravine and has to get Christina and Alfonso's help to get out. I think their car is broken down, but we never see their car, and, you know, we don't speak Spanish, so... But they're, I, they're lost in the woods. They're lost in the woods in a mountain range, and specifically it's night, and it's very cold. So, um... Eduardo's kind of getting a bit complainy about things. It seems like he's more the, like, stay-at-home, like, I-want-to-play-it-safe type, and Alfonso's a bit more adventurous. And it's for this reason, it seems, that Christina, Eduardo's wife, seems to prefer the company of Alfonso. Mm -hmm. Eduardo does not seem to have noticed this. They're arguing about where they can go to get shelter from the cold, and Alfonso brings up that there are ruins of a monastery nearby that they could stay in. And Eduardo doesn't really like that idea. That seems like, like a bad time to him. And their discussion is cut short when a stranger arrives, dressed head to toe in black, with like a black cape and like a black uh, hat, and he's accompanied by a dog. It was like a hood? It was a hat. It was like a Zorro hat. Right, it wasn't a right. hood. And he's accompanied by a dog named Shadow, a big black dog. And he tells them that he is on his way to the Monastery of Silence, uh, which is this nearby monastery, and that it has, staying in it, an order of monks called the Order of Silence, and he can take them there. This seems very strange to our heroes, because the monastery, as Alfonso knew it, was ruins, so, like, how is it there could be still, like, an order of monks there in this day and age? But... They follow the stranger to the monastery, and they knock on the door, and a monk opens and says, like, hey, yeah, like, you can come on in, because, like, it's a monastery, charity, like, they're going to provide for them. And, of course, when they turn around, the stranger is no longer there, and neither is the dog. Mm -hmm. They get led inside, and right away this monastery seems very strange. The monks are just a little weird. There's a lot of, like, weird little details about it. And everything about it is also very old-fashioned. Like, they pass by monks who are practicing self-flagellation, for example. What does that mean to people who might not know what that means? Oh, uh, that's when, like, you've sinned. So as part of your penance, you have, like, a cat of nine tails or something, and you're whipping yourself. And so they're passing by these things, and it all seems very, like, old-fashioned and out of place in, like, modern-day Mexico. And uh, they're each given, like, a, their own room apart from one another. Eduardo does not like this place. He's like, we should get out of here. This is too weird. This is really strange. These guys don't belong in this time. Like, it's really weird that there's just this weird, like, old-timey order of monks that survived out here in the middle of nowhere. Let's just get out of here. And Alfonso's like, listen, man, like, I'm hungry. I'm going to go, like, let's at least stay for dinner. I'm going to go find out, like, where we can get us some food. So he goes off exploring. And he comes across a room that has, like, a 
big cross nailed in front of the door so that whatever's inside can't get out, conceivably. And that's super weird. He also hears, like, moans and things coming from behind that door, and that's super weird. And the door has a sign over top of it, uh, which is in Latin. And we had to get, again, like Sarah said, like, the way that Google's auto-translate on YouTube works is it's listening to the dialogue, transcribing it in Spanish best it can, and then in real time auto-translating it to English best it can. So anything that's written down can't be translated. So it's got this Latin text above it, and it, for the sake of the Spanish-speaking audience, translates it to Spanish. We don't speak either language. Uh, we were able to kind of guess at both, but we didn't feel quite confident. So we uh, asked our friend Benito Serino to help out. Friend of the show, Benito. To help out, because, <laughs> uh, you know, he's, he's an educated Latin classicist. Latinist? And so we, we got a translation from him. And the, the Latin and the Spanish are slightly different, which is also strange. Um, but the, the Latin is, Cursed is he who loses God due to pleasures. And the Spanish is, Cursed is he who has forgotten God for the flesh. Which, like, you know. They're kind of the same. The weirdest part is that the movie claims that this is Jeremiah 42.10. Like, Book of Jeremiah, chapter 42, verse 10. And it is not. It's not... <laughs> anything. They just made up a Bible verse, which is weird. Uh, Alfonso finds that really weird. A monk comes up and, like, shoes him away from there. <laughs> Meanwhile, Eduardo and Christina are having their own weird experiences with a shadow of a bat on the wall that doesn't change regardless of how you change the lighting in the room. So they decide to get the hell out of here. They meet up with Alfonso and find that, like, there's no exits. Like, no matter what hallway you go down, there's no way out. Uh, they finally find a staircase going down to the basement, and that leads to a room full of empty coffins that are covered in earth. So, like, not coffins for the putting into the ground, but coffins that have been brought up out of the ground. Uh, so that's weird and unpleasant. Finally, the monks kind of find them and are like, hey, like, it's time for dinner. Like, come join us. And they're like, okay, cool. Okay, like, that's what we've been wanting. They go into the dining hall, and they sit down with all the monks, including um, the father. Abbot? The abbot, yes, thank you, that's the word I'm like. Father Prior, the, the abbot of the, the monastery. And Alfonso's kind of like, so, father, how is it that, like, an order of monks like you is still going here in, like, modern day times? And the father doesn't really take kindly to that question. Um, these monks, as you might have guessed from the name of their monastery, have sworn a vow of silence. So they're not going to, like just make idle chit-chat. That's when, like, a huge howling wind comes up out of nowhere. The monks are like, ah, shit, time to go to work. And they, like, all leave the dinner en masse, uh, leaving our three characters behind. Eduardo points out to everyone else that the monks' food is just dust. So they all think this is really weird. So they go to follow these monks. And the monks have gone into the, uh, basically the chapel of the uh, monastery to chant some hymns. And they do that for a while, and the howling wind goes away, and they're like, we have won again for another night. And then they return to dinner, and the characters, our three main characters, pretend like they didn't follow the monks. And the abbot says, okay, so maybe I should answer your question. Like, curiosity's bad, and it's a sin to be too curious, but, like, admittedly there's some strange things going on here, so, like, I'll tell you what's up. And the abbot tells them 
that there was this monk here, uh, Brother Rodrigo. And Brother Rodrigo came to the monastery and never... He had, he had committed some great sin in his past, but he never made confession. Uh, he never told anyone what his deal was. Uh, and then finally one day he died, and the monks found basically like his diary that like explained his story. And it turns out Rodrigo used to be real hot for his best friend's wife, just like our boy Alfonso. And Rodrigo um, was really good friends with, you know, these people, and he didn't want to, like, commit adultery or whatever, and he just needed a way out of this predicament. So he found a book with instructions on how to make a deal with Satan so that the devil would kill his best friend so he could go and marry his wife. And this is, in fact, what happened. And the best friend was found with, like, like a, a handprint around his throat where he'd been strangled. And that was when Rodrigo got cold feet and felt guilty over what he had done. And so instead of getting with the wife, he came to the monastery to find repentance. Problem is, he'd already sold his soul. So that wasn't going to work. And one day, Satan came to collect. And the monks found Rodrigo dead with a handprint around his throat. They buried him, all Christian style. But it didn't take. <laughs> and like every time they bury him his corpse would just return to his room and chill out there and, like, howl and moan. So eventually they stopped trying to bury him and just sealed him in that room with the cross. And then every night when Satan shows up to try and, like, collect, uh, they go out and they chant their hymns to, like, draw him off. And that's the deal with this place. While the abbot is telling this story about this guy, Rodrigo, who had to rely on Satan to kill his best friend so he could fuck his best friend's wife. Christina is, like, eyeing Alfonso seductively, and she carves the word coward into the table, as if to imply that Rodrigo was a coward for having to, like, rely on Satan to solve his problems for him. Yeah. Everyone goes back to their rooms after dinner. Oh, one other thing. During dinner, they notice that the monks all have skeleton hands, which, you know, <laughs> that's a little weird. After dinner, Eduardo and Alfonso are talking to each other about, like, the situation that they find themselves in. And Eduardo's of the position that, like, they've stumbled into some supernatural stuff that they should not be dealing with, that, like, mortal man was not meant to know, and all that, and they should get the fuck out of here. And Alfonso is like, no, 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 no. There's no such thing as ghosts or whatever. Either they're crazy, or they're covering up something important in that room, and they've invented this crazy fairy tale to, like, make people not investigate. Uh, I'm gonna find out what it is. And that's when one of the monks shows up and is like, hey, like, guys, like, we put you in separate rooms for a reason, and it's, like, called, like, the Monastery of Silence. So, like, shut up. So Alfonso goes back to his room, where Christina's waiting, and she's like, we must, and he's like, we can't. And he finally, like, convinces her not to go through with, like, boning down to adultery you know, in, in this monastery. monastery. And she goes back to her room, and he's in his room. They're all separated now. And I guess Alfonso gets a case of the blue balls because he gets out of his room and goes back to Christina's room and is like, hey, like, I'm sorry, like, forgive me. Like, actually, yes, I would like to bone down, but she's not answering the door. So he's like, all right, I'm going to go see what's behind Freaky Deaky Cross Room. And so he goes to the room and it turns out, so the cross is in front of the door, as if to prevent the door from opening outwards. 
but the door opens inwards, and the door opens all by itself into a black void, and, you know, Alfonso just kind of, like, ducks his head under the arm bar of the cross and walks inside, and of course the door closes behind him and seals him in. And so he's inside, he's got a lantern, he's looking around, it's all dusty and moldy and musty, and there's a body under a sheet on the bed and a little bedside table with a book on it. And he pulls back the sheet, and it's the dead body of Brother Rodrigo. And this is the part of the movie where they used one of those mummies uh, from the museum, because that's, that's a real dead person there. Yep. Are you okay? I, during this part of the movie, I, like, got real close to wanting to throw up. It was real really? gross. Oh. Yeah, it was, it was real gross, Sarah. Like, both, like, on a physical, like, oh, that actor's, like, in a room with a real dead body kind of way. But also, like, I felt, like, some weird ethical grossness about, like, taking some Aztec person's mummy and, like, having it, like, play a role in this movie. Oh, definitely. But, yeah, you, uh... You look a little green in the gills right now. Anyways, so Alfonso's like, gross, and goes to explore the rest of the room. And that's when Brother Rodrigo's dead hand moves and basically falls on the book at the bedside table as if to say, dummy, it's over here. (laughs) So Alfonso checks out the book and it's the How to Contact Satan book. And basically, um, and again, this was a big block of Spanish text, but it translated pretty smoothly um, when we paused it and tried to work out what it said. So basically what it says is, hey, you don't have to do anything. There's no spooky ritual. Satan is already within your heart. You just have to ask him what you what you need and he will deliver, which like, I mean, if there's going to be a satanic Bible, that feels like a reasonable thing to find in it. Um, you know, a lot more reasonable than, like, your Alistair Crowley ass, like, draw a pentagram in a circle and, like, invoke, like, the four stars of the Eastern constant, like, whatever. Satan's in your heart. Just ask and you will receive. Um. Santa? (laughs) So, that's when Alfonso says the name Eduardo and the words, he is dead, write themselves into the book. And he's like, oh shit. And he, like, throws the book down and turns around and dead brother Rodrigo has been replaced with dead Eduardo with the mark around the throat and everything. I have to say for a movie from 1934, Eduardo looks real dead. He doesn't look the way that actors faking being dead typically look. He doesn't look like he's just asleep or unconscious. Like he's, he's, you know, mouth agape, tongue lolled, eyes just glassily staring into nothing, like all contorted. It's, it's rough. Alfonso, you know, freaks out at this, understandably, especially because he's trapped in the room here, and he kind of tries to get out, and he bangs on the door, and finally he just, like, passes out. This is too much. And then, you know... And the sun rises, and in the morning light, it turns out that Alfonso's outside the weird crossroom... And um, he wakes up, and it's like, huh. And he goes running around the monastery, and he bumps into Eduardo and Christina. And he's like, oh, like, Eduardo, you're not dead. It was all a dreamy meme. Like, (laughs) 
it, it was nothing. Like, it was a nightmare. Like, you're really alive. Like, the spirits did it all in one night kind of thing. <laughs> and um, they're all celebrating that. And they're like, okay, well, it's morning. The sun's out. Let's get the fuck out of here. So they're, like, about to leave. And then they're like, well, okay, but we should thank the monks for their hospitality. The weird, creepy monks. So they go to look for the monks. And they bump into an old janitor sweeping the floor. And they're like, hey, where are the monks? And he's like, what are you talking about? They're like, we stayed the night here. We just want to thank them. And he's like, no, you didn't, because we lock up this place at the end of the night every night. And, like, I come and open it in the morning. And ain't nobody was in here. Also, there's no monks. And they're like, no, like, we ate with them in the dining hall and, like, did all this stuff. And he's like, ain't nobody been in that dining hall for years. It's all fucked up and broken. Like, I probably can't even get the door open but here let's try just so i can show you fools how deranged and weird you are he opens up the room and it's yeah it's fucked it's dust and cobwebs and broken down ceiling and and oh like it's been centuries since someone's in here but but when christina goes and checks the table like brushes like 500 years worth of dust off kind of thing there's the word coward written in the table just like she did last night and they're like, okay, no, listen, janitor dude, like, we talked to the abbot and the monks, like, last night here, so, like, stop fucking with us, like, take us to them. And he's like, all right, I'll take you to the monks, and takes them downstairs to where those coffins were last night, only now they're all filled with dead monks, because the monks are dead. Mm-hmm. And they're like, well, I guess we'll be going now. Yeah. <laughs> and they go to leave, and the movie ends with... Alfonso and Eduardo kind of having a debate over are they alive and did the monks come to life for one night or are the monks dead and they were dead for one night? Mm-hmm. Not that it really matters. And the end. Uh, it kind of matters. Yeah. So yeah, I, I really liked this. I thought this was really good. Yeah, I thought it had a lot of really good mood setting. Mm-hmm. Um a lot of creepiness. Yeah, it had a very good, like, understated, spooky atmosphere, is, I think, the thing it did best. Yeah. Even though I couldn't exactly tell what was being said, I could tell when certain phrases were, like, when a, when a monk says something, like, that's just, like, a little creepy, a little off-putting, um, by, like, reactions and stuff, I could, I could tell. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I like that kind of creepiness. It was just so refreshing to get an actual, for real, <laughs> ghost story in a movie. Yeah. Like, the 1940s, where the rest of the show is right now, have gotten pretty tepid. But even, like, overall, American cinema has always been super reluctant to emphasize the undead in a supernatural context. Mm-hmm. They seem to prefer scientific ghouls, as it were. Like, if a mad scientist can bring the dead back to life, that's fine. But, like, how many ghosts have we seen in an American movie? Like, none? Like, real ghosts that don't turn out to be, like, old man McGillicuddy trying to get the will. Um, well, like, Supernatural. That's true. Yes, Supernatural had real ghosts. Um, but, like, a lot of the times it feels like the undead, if it's Supernatural, only show up in the context of, like, the myths of other cultures, right? Dracula's a vampire. Imhotep's a mummy. You have Haitian voodoo zombies, Right? But you don't have, like, straight-up European-style 
ghosts in American movies, there's sort of a reluctance to cross that bridge. Mm-hmm. And it was just so nice to, like, get a real horror story in a horror movie for once. <laughs> I guess we kind of had ghosts with the devil commands. Yeah, but even but, then, it was like a weird scientific ghost. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't quite... Like, in this movie, you have, like, Catholic morals and a Catholic setting and, like, Catholic imagery, and it really enhances the ghost story, in my opinion, because, like, it gives it this weight because it's the real actual beliefs of, like, the real actual culture that the movie's coming from, as opposed to this thing that you see this in American media all the time, whether it's horror, like, adventure stories or, like, comic book stuff. There's this weird thing in American culture where it's, like, everyone's culture but American culture is true. Sure. Because, like, I feel like there's this reluctance to directly portray, like, Jesus and angels and, like, Christian mythology on screen, unless it's, like, an explicitly Christian movie, right? Like, maybe there's a fear that that's, like, um, trivializing Christianity if you just throw it in as, like, an element in an action-adventure movie. But it creates this weird universe where, like, you know, Indiana Jones lives in a world where, like, all religions are true, you know, because, like, Hindu stuff happens and, like, or, you you, you know, like, Thor is real or, like, whatever, like, you know, <laughs> but it's never Christian stuff. And here, seeing it be in that context makes it have a lot of weight to it because it's not just some, you know, exotic other, right? How much of that do you think is fact that America is largely Protestant and Mexico is very Catholic and Catholicism and occultism are like a stone's throw away from each other. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's certainly like Protestant spookiness. I get what you're saying. What's weird to me is that like Protestants are more into ghost stories than Catholics because Catholics find the idea of like talking about ghosts that aren't the Holy Ghost to be like a little blasphemous. Yeah. But I think the reason you see it you have, like, The Exorcist. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Like, I feel like, though, even that, like, you know, it's like, you're totally right. When you do get Christian themes in a horror movie in America, it's always Catholic ones. Yeah. But I wonder if that's, like you said, because America's majority Protestant, so Catholic still has the weird ring of otherness. Yeah, well, they have all the rituals and stuff. Right, yeah. Protestantism is just so, like... We, we, we just sing about Jesus... I think the idea of, like, monks being cursed to undeath for, like, failing to save their brother is a really intriguing one. Like, you don't often see, like, you know, like, the vassals of God on Earth, as it were, <laughs> be the ones cursed to, like, weird spooky ghostum, right? Well, what's interesting is they are protecting Rodrigo still from the devil. Mm-hmm. The monks aren't cursed so much as they are continuing their responsibilities after death. That's true. That's true. I find it really interesting how, like, creepily the movie portrays the monastery and the monks themselves. Because, like, even before it's clear that anything is going on, like, the monastery is already really weird and creepy and all the monks are really weird and creepy. And it kind of taps into, like, I don't know how common this is for anyone else, but for me, it really tapped into the feeling I get when I walk into churches. Uh, I tend to feel really uncomfortable and out of place. Mm. Like, everything's kind of looking at me and watching me, and, like, I don't belong. 
and like everything seems a little strange and I shouldn't be there. And that's how these characters feel when they're in the monastery. So that really like hit a chord with me. Mm-hmm. Um, side note, I've always found it interesting that you feel that way with churches, like regardless of like sect or size or anything like that. Um, and it just furthers my theory that you truly are a Romanian vampire. <laughs> I thought it was interesting. Um, maybe it was just because of us basically going like 10 years in the past into a different country. Yes. Um, for the style of acting that mm. we saw. It was very kind of stylized. Yeah. Like Christina, Eduardo, Alfonso, they're all all right actors. Um, but there, it feels like a type of acting where they're playing archetypes. Mm-hmm. And what really underlines that feeling for me is when the film opens, we get um, like a, a headshot of each person. So we are like, ah, this person's playing Christina. Yeah, it's like a, it's like a sitcom opening credits. Yeah, where like everyone Full turn, House. Yeah, where everyone turns and smiles at the camera while the actor's name appears below them. Um, but each of them are doing like, they were like told, okay, portray the emotion that embodies your character. And Christina's like seductive. Eduardo's paranoid. And Alfonso's, like, curious. Mm-hmm. And, like, that's a fine style of acting. It's whatever. Um, it felt... I felt myself feeling, like, a little frustrated that there wasn't more depth to the characters. Mm. But at the same time, that's not really what they're going for. And La Llorona was a bit like that, too. So I don't really want to criticize the movie for doing this. I just think... It's something interesting, especially when we think about where horror movies go with having the archetypes of the blonde girl killed first, right. or whatever. The the thing that's interesting to me is, you know, this is still fairly early in sound films in Mexico, right? Sounds two years old in Mexico at this point. Yeah. And these styles of acting feel like sound equivalents to silent acting styles. Really what the movie felt like, in terms of its acting at least, was expressionism. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it all felt like a very expressionist acting style. But it's interesting that you bring up the characters not having a lot of depth. I'll agree to that, because they are just archetypes. But the flip side to that is that this movie's a character drama. Like, yeah. like, like, what I mean by that is, this is, like, this perfect little campfire ghost story done as a movie, right? Yeah. But the thing that makes it work so well is that all the horror ghost stuff is just backing up a strong, central character drama, which is to say that, like, the events of the horror story actually, like, inform and support actual character arcs that, like, the main leads go through, like a real story or something. (laughs) And that was really nice to see. Like, to see that this wasn't just a movie with a plot, you know, characters go to spooky monastery filled with ghosts. It was also a movie with a story, i.e. Alfonso has to make a choice between committing adultery with his best friend's wife or not, right? And the horror ghost stuff supports and backs up the other stuff. And I just can't remember the last time, you know, we had a movie that felt like it had a character who went through, like, legitimate character arc and whose character arc and development was legitimately, like, paralleled and supported by the horror stuff. You know, so even though it's, like, simplistic, both, like, the ghost story part and the character part, it's still more effective than, like, a lot of the more convoluted stuff we've been getting out of Hollywood lately. Yeah, I would agree with that. Simple, archetypal characters with story depth. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, yeah. The the it's just good storytelling um, using simple characters, which I suppose is like the D.W. Griffith method. Yeah, fair. Fantastic cinematography, I thought, with lots of good spooky imagery, mm-hmm. uh, backed up by a really appropriate score. I felt that like backed up the horror really well. Yeah, I really wish it wasn't using like the first four notes of Green Sleeves all the time, though, because that really made me go like just play the rest of the song. Was it Green Sleeves? I thought it sounded to me like um, uh, the one that goes like da 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 da. That's Green Sleeves. No, that's not Green Sleeves. Is bum 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 ba dum bum 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 You just schooled me. <laughs> yeah, but you're but you're totally right because it's it's the notes are the like like the doorbell at your grandparents or like uh, the bride is just about to start walking down the aisle, you know. Yeah, but you're totally right, and I had the exact same thought with the score of like, but instead it goes into like weird spooky music after that. Yeah, which I guess is appropriate because it gets across the like. You know, like, it's religious, classical music, but it's spooky. <laughs> so so I guess if we're addressing the, like, flatness of the characters, it really only bothered me in the case of Christina, because uh, she's a bit of a bad stereotype. Like, she, she is what she needs to be for this story. Um, it's just weird how, like, sh- how willing she still is to cheat on Eduardo after they get this, like, story from the Abbot about, like, how specifically this thing led to, like, curses and damnation. Like, it's almost like she's, like, turned on by the prospect. Yeah. You know? Yeah, she's... It's a little too much... The thing between her and Alfonso is a little too one-sided. Because it's really portrayed like she's seducing him. Ergo, like, she's the bad influence. She's the sinful one, which, like... Hey, I guess if you're doing a movie with Catholic, like, themes, like, you're on the money... But I think that lessens the idea that it's Alfonso's moral choice at the end to make. Because, like, it feels more like she's throwing herself at him. Which should be an easier... The only way that's a hard moral choice is if just you're, like, a man of zero character and, like, willpower. Right? As opposed to, like, if he was the one who was really into her, it's a stronger moral choice to say no then. Right? Yeah. I definitely agree with you. Um, he does still... It's it's interesting because in the context of Christina basically throwing herself at him, they kiss, and then he's like, no, we really shouldn't. So she, like, dejectedly goes back to her room, and then, like, presumably, like, an hour or so later, he goes and he's like, actually, no, really, please let me in. Mm-hmm. Um, it's almost as if it's, like his moment of weakness. Yes. And then he learns, like, just what kind of consequences that moment of weakness has. Yes. So it kind of underlines the idea of, like, it's up to a man's willpower Mm -hmm. to determine what happens. Yeah. Which is, I mean, like, you see that in culture today with just, like, even Twilight, you know? Bella's super into it and Edward's like, no, can't. I'll go crazy. Right. Well, it's it's part of this, like, wider idea that, like, if a man commits some sort of, you know, sexual-related sin, whether that's adultery or what have you, 
it's the woman's fault for seducing him, right? As opposed to, you know, what is 99% of the time the case, which is like, no, you went after her, right? So, yeah, it was just something that, like, was a little weird. Um, It was fine for, like, what the story is, because it is, like, almost a fable level of simplicity to the story. Um, I just felt it could have been a little stronger if we'd gotten, like, more of a sense that, like, Alfonso... Alfonso was also into her? Yes. Because other than, like, the kiss they share, he's just kind of like, sure, I'll hold your hand. Yeah. Um, the last thing is that I'll just say is that, um, when we are getting told the story of Rodrigo, of Brother Rodrigo, it's kind of told in, like, these almost, like, vignette Mm -hmm. flashbacks. Um, we don't see the whole story, we see, like, moments, and then we come back to seeing the abbot talk at the table. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's pretty exposition-heavy, um, and a lot of it is focused on the abbot talking. And I don't know if this is because, like, I don't know what he's quite saying, um, but I didn't find it super engaging. Um, it made me wonder if it would have been more engaging if we had been able to see, like, the full flashback, even if it was in, like, a montage kind of sequence. Because I, I kept thinking about that one scene in White Zombie, giving the exposition of what a zombie is, um, and the camera, like is constantly, like, moving around the room mm-hmm. during the time, so it was visually engaging at the same time. Yeah. I think there's, like, a fine tightrope with stuff like this because, mm-hmm. on the one hand, um, I, I kind of agree with you. Like, film's a visual medium, show don't tell. You know, we've seen stuff like this done effectively, like in The Mummy. You know, maybe one of the most effective scenes in the original Mummy is the flashback Scene, in the pool. Yeah, giving Karloff's origin. I think maybe there was a problem with the fact that I think... I think a lot of this movie seems to me to be coming from we rented this monastery for the week. Like, they don't go anywhere else, right? And so I think there was maybe some reluctance to have a lot of other locations and sets and characters. Especially after La Llorona. And if you compare to La Llorona, like La Llorona is a movie that'll go to a flashback at the drop of a hat That's true. and spend like 20 minutes in it, right? Like La Llorona has so many different flashbacks to different things that it feels like an anthology movie. It feels like there's like four different movies in it. And so on the one hand, the flashback can be effective, but on the other hand, you run the risk of suddenly it feels like we're watching a different movie about someone else and like, okay, so is Rodrigo important or is Alfonso important? Like where's the focus of the movie you know, is the monastery stuff just a framing narrative for this now story about Rodrigo that we're getting? So I'm not saying it couldn't have been done well, but there's certainly a tightrope that you walk there uh, where if you show, you know, you, you want to show, not tell, but if you show too much, you run the risk of, like, confusing what story you're telling. That's a fair point. I had forgotten how close the release dates between La Llorona and this movie were. So I think you're totally spot on with them being like, La Llorona was mainly just flashbacks. Yes. Let's try to mitigate that. Yeah. I'd say my only other um, complaint about this movie, I guess, criticism, would be I think that the morning after part gets drawn out like a little too much. Like, yeah, we get it. Yeah. A little bit. Like, yeah, they were all dead. Like, all the reveals are cool but maybe they only needed to do one of them or 
speed up the edit in that part and have there be less conversation with them and the janitor. It just, either way, it should be punchier. Like, if you were telling this as a campfire ghost story, the part where you go, but when they woke up the next morning, like, they found that all the monks were dead and had been for centuries. Like, it's, it just needs to be that, right? Because that's the, like, punch that you need to go out on. And this movie kind of drags it on a little bit too long. It turns almost into a weird comedy bit. A little. Yeah. Also, like, it goes immediately from, like, Alfonso trapped in the room with dead Eduardo to, like, like a, a sunny landscape. And, like, it... I joked when Ben was giving the plot summary of giving the Rite of Spring tune, but that's pretty much what plays. So it's like, why? It just It's a bit too much for a, a mood shift. This is such a bad episode for you in classical music. Oh, fuck, it's not Rite of Spring, Rite is of it? Spring is the scary music that underscores the dinosaur bit in Fantasia. <gasps> oh, but you know which one I, I mean. No, exactly. Like, we hummed it. Like, totally, I know what you mean. I'm just saying it's really funny to me that, like, today's not your day for identifying <laughs> classical music. Um, I used to be so good at this. But yeah, you're you're totally right. Like, it kind of undercuts... The movie gets to its most effective point. It builds and builds and builds to this climax and then immediately undercuts it. And I still really like the movie a lot and I don't... I'm not 100% sure how you would mitigate that with the way that the movie ends. With, like, the ending being this kind of like, oh, but it all worked out and it was all a I, dream. Personally, I wouldn't have the establishing shot of sun coming up over the hills. I would have it, like... Because we get this one neat shot where it's like sunlight streaming in through the window, looking at the cross, going down, and then panning yeah. to the right where you see him asleep outside. I would just, just stuck with that. Yeah. Totally with you about cutting down the last bit. Um, I don't know if it's just because we, we've gotten a little spoiled with the Universal endings or what, but like, <laughs> just not having any denouement. The monster's dead. Just end the movie. Yeah. Yeah. But like, totally with you that we still need the... The reveal. It just, just could have happened a lot quicker. Yeah. There were parts in this movie during um, conversations that I kept, I, I felt like it was lagging. I assumed that it was just because I don't know what they're saying. I think so. I think the pacing to me felt right in the rest of the movie, but certainly like long dialogue scenes are going to feel like they're going on too long when you can't quite follow what they're saying, right? Yeah. yeah. So let's move on to ranking. For sure. So where are you thinking of ranking El Fantasma del Convento? First, I was thinking, okay, well, what movies would we have watched, like, in and around if we had watched this in chronological order? Sure. And that's Black Moon and Sex, Ma Sex Maniac. Um, this movie is definitely better than those. Black Moon's at 64. Okay. And then I was also thinking about La Girona because this, that movie sparked this film, basically, and I would consider this definitely better than La Girona. Mm -hmm. So that's, it's basically like above 65 for me. I had a bit of a tough time because I wasn't sure whether to think about movies that would, like to... Yeah, to like retroactively think of what the list was like back then or something. Yeah. I think that's a little bit almost too hard of a mental exercise to do. I certainly didn't try when I was coming up with my range, so... Yeah, well, it was something I was thinking about. I was trying to think of, like, what are movies on the list that are kind of comparable to this in terms of the feeling they give me, in terms of, and in terms of the mood. And honestly, all the way through watching this movie, the one movie I kept thinking about... Vampire? Yes. It, it was so similar in, like, its mood and its 
style of eerie, slow-paced spookiness, um, and that kind of nightmare feeling. Um, so that's where I started thinking of, and honestly, I gave this movie a lot of points for actually trying to be scary, actually having a ghost story, you know, actually being threatening, actually being morbid, having a real dead body in it, really showing, like, what death is. Um, you know, even the monks, when we see them dead in their coffins at the end, like, look like how dead bodies in a coffin look as opposed to just, you know... The actors, like, with flour on them. Or, like, skeletons that you bought at, like, the Halloween store. <laughs> um, you know, and, and certainly the actor playing Eduardo's performance when he's dead. Like, this movie just really, I think, hit a chord with me on a lot of disturbing levels, and it felt like it was really trying to be a horror movie, uh, even if it was rather simplistic. I see what you're saying with Vampire. Um, maybe it's just because both of those films are very Catholic. Mm. What about Fall of the House of Usher? I, I bring that one up because I know you like it a lot more than me. Yeah. And I also know that it's like, it is like a, a kind of a classic and has a big reputation in film criticism. So I kind of want to correct for my potential bias with the fact that like, I recognize that movie's good, but I personally find it boring. And Usher's kind of your vampire. We've talked about this before, where my regard for vampire is very much your regard for Usher. Yeah. I think it's interesting that you started the whole second half of this show by admiring El Fantasma for doing more with less. Mm -hmm. And one of your main critiques with Usher is that they are doing... It's a shotgun approach yes. with like artistic styles and, and everything. So I think this is an interesting comparison. Let's, let's assume we could get good subtitles on El Fantasma. Which would you rather, like, watch again? You know, if I sat you down and I said, hey, tonight we're either going to watch one of these two movies. That's really hard, too. Because what I like about Usher is how dreamlike it feels. Mm -hmm. um, and part of that is the repetitive aspects of it. Mm -hmm. I really like its vibe, um, its flavor. Um, mm -hmm. it's je ne sais quoi. Yeah. Because it's French. Yeah. Um, this movie's good too. Um, there's just something about Usher that just like strikes a chord in me. I think if we were to kind of compare the two, it would be very difficult. Their intent is both like to make a horror movie. What that looks like is very different for each. I you can almost feel the difference between, like, the French and Mexican, like, sensibilities, right? Yeah, it's very interesting, especially because they're both so Catholic. Also, we, we just watched Crimson Peak recently, which, true. like, you know, Guillermo del Toro is Mexican, and it's, like, him doing a gothic horror movie. By the way, please see Crimson Peak. It's so good if you want to know what my aesthetic is. Is and especially in horror movies, that's that's it, that's it. Crimson Peak is number one on Scream Scene. Um, okay. back to El Phantasma. Okay. I think to kind of like wrap this yeah. all up, I feel like I would still put Usher above. All right. Well, then entering the list at number twenty-eight is El Phantasma del Convento from nineteen thirty-four. Directed by Fernando 
de Fuentes. If you would like to see this list, you can go on over to screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the other episodes we've discussed today. Um, you can check out La Llorona, Fall of the House of Usher, Vampire, all good choices. If you would like to contest or challenge one of our ratings for either this film or any other, you can find an appeals box on our website, or you can also email us at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com. We're also happy to talk about it over Twitter at underscore screamscene. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play. We'd really appreciate it if you could leave a rating or a review on any of the services that allow that, as it not only helps the show get seen by other people thanks to algorithms, but also just makes us feel warm and fuzzy inside because we like getting feedback. Another way that you can help out the show is by letting a friend know about it. We are heading into the climax of October. Uh, One week to Halloween. Right. So, let people know about the show. Uh, you know, send them... <laughs> Are you them... purposely rhyming? No. Send them the top ten. Send them your favorite episode. Uh, send them a link to the playlist on YouTube. Let people know about us. It's our time to shine, as it were. So, we really would appreciate you spreading the word. Another thing we'd really appreciate is if you'd head over to patreon.com slash podcast, where there's been a lot of crazy stuff happening all month. Uh, you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. Patrons at the $1 level get their names read out on the show. Patrons at the $5 level get access to weekly bonus audio on Mondays that mostly has consisted of deleted sections from previous episodes. Patrons at the $10 level get access to monthly horror short stories that I write uh, that don't appear anywhere else. They're written exclusively for the patrons. And for the month of October, patrons at all levels have been getting access to Halloween music that's been coming out weekly on Fridays from chart-topping electronic music artist Stego Saris, a.k.a. co-host Sarah. There are going to be five of those tracks in all by the end of the month, one for each Friday and one for All Hallows' Eve itself. Similarly, Horror Short Fiction is coming out uh, once a week as well, uh, so there's going to be a total of four Horror Shorts at the $10 level for October. It's our time to thank you for supporting us in whatever way that you currently do, so... Even if you subscribe to the Patreon for just this month just to get these goodies, we are just happy to have folks around. So patreon.com slash podcast is where you want to go to check that out. What are we watching next week, Ben, for our Halloween episode? Well, if you're listening to the episodes numerically, then the next episode is episode 47, where we are watching Dwayne Esper's Sex Maniac from 1934. That's, if, a, that's a fun one. If you're listening to the episodes in release date order, then our next episode is our Halloween 2018 episode. It'll be going up on October 31st as, uh, well, our um, top 10 list is going up on Tumblr that day as well with links to where you can find all the movies in our top 10. Uh, but it's a very appropriate film for Halloween, I think. I've never seen it, so we'll see, but it's Universal Studios, so, you know, some horror pedigree. It's directed by George Wagner. It's called 
Horror Island. Amazing. I'm so excited. So we will see you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye! Bye!